Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Goldmine Podcast. This is Patrick Prince, editor of Goldmine Magazine. And fans of Jerry Garcia will be excited to hear this podcast. We are going to interview bassist Pat Campbell. And Pat collaborated with Jerry Garcia quite a bit. But it's a recent release of The Good Old Boys Live that has Jerry Garcia playing mandolin, singing a few songs in Santa Cruz, California, during a break from the Grateful Dead in 1975. And it really emphasizes Jerry's love for bluegrass. Uh, now, Goldmine contributor Bruce Sylvester joins me on the podcast. Bruce gave the good old boy's new live album, Drink Up and Go Home, five stars in the latest issue of Goldmine, the April cover date that's now on newsstands at Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and other record stores. Uh, this is a live recording that Pat Campbell had in his possession all this time um, since nineteen mid seventies, and he'll he'll explain why he has finally released it to the public. Uh, and of course, it also has the great bluegrass mandolin master Frank Wakefield playing as well. Uh, we're, we'll be talking to Pat from Nevada, California, Marin County. Um, there's some crackling on the phone in the middle of this podcast talk, and we apologize for that, but think of it as a, a warm, well-played record that doesn't obscure the substance of the, what's being said. So, so let's play a cut first with Jerry Garcia on vocals. This is the title track from the album, and then we'll go to Pat Campbell and Bruce Sylvester, both on the line, to talk about this rare album. We're going to get Jerry to sing one here for everybody to cry in their beer. Called Drink Up and Go Home.
Hi, it's Pat Prince and Bruce Sylvester of Goldmine Magazine. Hey, man, how you doing? How are you? I'm good, thanks. You know, the good old boys, which many consider like a bluegrass supergroup, uh, which obviously you were part of, uh, th- uh, there's a new release, Good Old Boys Live 2 CD Set, which is a 1975 performance featuring, uh, you know, Jerry Garcia, so... Um, Bruce, Bruce, who was on the line, Bruce Sylvester, um, gave it five stars in our recent, uh, publication, um, which is the April issue. Um, and I guess my first question is why the release now? Why, why release the concert now? Uh, so many years later. Well, very good question. Uh, I had it in my possession and, uh, after I got back off that, that tour, I just didn't think, you know, there was, I mean, Jerry was, everybody was still alive, and, you know, I just didn't think it was that, that significant, you know, at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just thought it was cool to have the recording. It wasn't, um, you know, Grateful Dead Records just put out the, a, a studio version of a different take on the band. So I didn't press it, you know, I just hung on to it. As time went on, I started liking it more, hmm. but uh, and I had kicked it around some, but I didn't have any capital to kind of to kind of get it going. Right. So one of the so so basically, I, I sat back on it. Then Jerry died. Yeah. And everything kind of went into chaos at that point there, um, and it was what there was one attorney handling everything. And it was just chaos. You know, I didn't 
it was too hard to get done. Gotcha. And then, and then, uh, then all the, the his his siblings or his uh, excuse me his kids. Yeah. Uh, and his brother Tip, who was a good friend of mine, passed away. He lived right down the street from me. Were able to give permission, but Tip really didn't want to have anything to do with it. And so I kind of just sat there. I was just trying to wait and see what, trying to get it out. You know, now that uh, more people, I played it for a few people. A lot of people said, "Hey, you should get this going." You know. Yeah. And you so, know, uh, Garcia fans are going to be very thankful for for you to put this down. Not only good old boys fans, but. Um, because this just happened to be a, a period where, you know, I guess two key players, right, weren't weren't able to show up for uh, a bit of the road, and no, not not necessarily. Um, the key player Don Reno had his own thing going in, uh, uh, I believe, it was in Ohio. He came out specifically to do the record, and Chubby was in Texas, and he had his he had his own life in Texas. Yes, so. So they just came out to do the record, and I, but I wanted a way to promote the record. And I was just going to take out uh, the, the band that we used before, which was pretty much everybody that's on the record except for a banjo player by the name of Robert Earl Davis, who has, uh, is known for the Earl Brothers. He was in the original, original rendition of the Good Old Boys to start with, but then we were in the we were in the studio. I mentioned this to David and and said, "Hey, we got to go do some gigs for Motus." And then Garcia mentioned that he to me that he was very interested. He wanted to play. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, "Okay, man, you can be the banjo player." You know. <laughs> so, but he said, "Cool," because he could just go out and sing harmonies and a couple songs and kind of hang out with right. his, uh, his his uh, his future wife at the time, which was. Uh, uh, Deborah Deborah Coons, so it was kind of a good time for all for all of us. Yeah, and of course, when you were you're talking about the a uh, studio album, you're talking about the one on Round Records, um, and I think that was was that recorded at Mickey Hart's uh, yeah. studio. Yes, okay. it was recorded at Mickey Hart's barn here here in Nevada, where I live, right down the not too far. Maybe really, a mile away from where I am right now. I'm, I'm holding that record in my head at this very moment. <laughs> he, has a, he has a vinyl? Yeah. Cool. That's of cool, course. Man. That must be worth yeah. something, no, the vinyl. Um, was it ever reissued? I don't know if it was reissued on CD. It was reissued only on CD, not right. vinyl. Right, right, And the CD is out of print. Yep, that's what I thought. So what was yeah. it What was it like to uh, tour with Jerry? What was it like to uh, work with him and uh you know, perform with him, jam with him. Uh, he, you know, he was, he just kind of melted in as a regular guy, you know, he was just, he was, uh, that was the great thing about yeah. him, right? I, he was just, um, you know, part of the, part of the guys, you know? Yeah. He wasn't ever sitting there like, no, I'm a rock star and I need, you know, and uh, you should look up to me. And, you know, he was, he was just a band guy, you know. He was really, he was really that kind of. You know, he had a lot of soul with his, with his singing and, and and so forth. But he was really just a band. I mean, he he was just part of the band. Right. You know? um, uh, I did some other recording with him, 
an album called uh, Crossing the Line by Bill Cutler. Oh, that was my next and, question. Okay. Yeah, and and he we started that was also uh, came about when Garcia found out that we were recording. He, uh, uh, Bill and I were at a, we, I was at a gig with the Good Old Boys. Uh, with, uh, and Jerry was uh, on the other band that was playing. It was called the Great American String Band, and we were backstage. And, and this guy, and Bill Cutler, asked me if I wanted to work on these songs uh, with him in the studio, Wally Hyder Studio. I said sure. And then Jerry, Jerry put his head between me and Bill and said, "I want to play too." <laughs> <laughs> so, so Bill said, "You have to rehearse," and he said, "I'll rehearse." <laughs> so he actually came up to Bill's apartment and rehearsed with us, and then we went to a little studio in the city and re- uh, on Sixth uh, Avenue called Adios Amigos. In fact, the guy that that did the sound for the live album, he owned the studio. Mm. We went there and rehearsed for the for this uh, recording we did at Wally Hyder's in 1975, and then it just sat in the can for many years as well until Bill got it out in 1999 because he had to go through legal battles getting that out, you know, trying to get, get it through the Garcia estate. It was, it was, it was hard. It was really hard getting stuff through. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and when I, I started working on this project, getting it out in 2015, I sent an email to Trixie Garcia, uh, Garcia's brother of uh, Garcia's uh, daughter, and she introduced me to a company called Red Light Management that handles the Jerry stuff. But yeah. they kicked me down the road for three years and saying they finally, he finally, Mark Allen was a manager. He finally said, if you find a record company, go ahead. So I did. But Jerry, but, but anyway, I, the, uh, the situation with Jerry sitting there in the studio with him, I mean, right across from me, the three were sitting in a circle recording the Wally Hyder's. You know, and he was just a regular, really a regular guy, you know, trying to talk about, well, let's slow the temple down. What do you think about, you know, never directing, just say, well, what do you think? You yeah. Know, or, you know, and he always included you in conversations. He always assumed that you kind of knew what he was talking about, even though he was so well read that half, a lot of the time I was having a hard time figuring out, you know, because he was very, very well read. I would pay very close attention to what he's really saying. You know, we say, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said, take you right into it with his conversation. But he, you know, he, he was, he was not, a, he was not, uh, he was not throw the TV out of the, out of the, uh, Oh, the hotel window thing, you know. He's he's really a great guy. Well, it's strange because in in the press release it says recently unearthed, so it's kind of cool to hear that you've had possession of these uh, tapes and listening to them. Um, uh, Now understanding the full story of where they were, it wasn't like you just came upon them in the, uh, you know, in the vault. No, no, John Cutler, who became the producer of The Grateful Dead, he actually produced... uh, Touch of Grey, which was a right. big hit. Well, John was just, this was way before he started working with Jerry or, or the dead in general. Uh, he was working with myself and Bill Cutler and Bill's band. And in fact, that show, Bill Cutler and I and the fiddle player Brantley and a guy named Scotty Quick, who was playing with Hagar, 
we did an acoustic set in between the good old boy sets. John came and said, hey, we should record this. Oh. I said, yeah, I guess you're right. He said, so he told me what kind of tape to get, which was scotch tape. So he knew that that wouldn't break down right. like uh, the Ampex tape. He said, get this tape. Uh, I'll, he got he got Osley's uh, Bears Nagger recorder that recorded Olden in the Way. Hmm. He got that recorder, and he brought it with him to, on the road to the gig. And it was his idea. Interesting. <laughs> so I, I I bought the tape. He, he, he recorded it. He, when we finished the gig, he handed me the tapes. How was that uh, Santa Cruz Club? Uh, do you remember it? Like is it? I do. I remember it wasn't it wasn't a very high ceiling, but it held. I don't know. I want to say, I don't know, around the back, maybe two hundred people. Three. Right. I'm not quite sure. It was packed. I mean, it was like sardines in there, and it was very super crowd. The people were really into it. Really into it. There were a lot of Frank Wakefield fans there that were also Jerry Garcia fans and David Nelson as well. Right. In fact, in fact, uh, Bruce wanted to ask some Frank Wakefield questions. Um, sure. Yeah. But one thing I was going to ask here was, yeah, it's in Santa Cruz. Not everybody who's going to be hearing this podcast is familiar with Santa Cruz. You know, to, to exactly. some people, it's it's just heaven on earth. Do you want to say a little bit about Santa Cruz and why it was appropriate for for you know put bands like the Good Old Boys, or even if it was. Well, we were basically, at that time, it was like 75, so there were a lot of venues around. I mean, <laughs> I mean, unlike now. So what we were trying to do is play play uh, medium-type venues to large, you know, to maybe five, 500 or 1,000 people. Uh-huh. And, and uh, so we were doing the Keystones and Great American Music Hall and places like that. And... We had, we were offered, uh, we were offered this show in Santa Cruz, and we thought, hey, this would be cool. We'd go down there, to the, you know, Santa Cruz is on the beach, and uh, the beach community, and, you know, we can go walk or walk around, have some fun, and, and Jerry was all into that, because he was, he was hanging with his girlfriend, so he was all into that, and uh, he was more like a little mini, mini vacation to the beach for three or four days. And we yeah. decided, so Santa Cruz is, is you know, there's a, there's a lot of beach stuff going on there, but the boardwalk going on and all that kind of stuff. So it's a destination of probably Central California people. It's a destination. It's been a destination since we were kids. Oh, so, sure. So it's like it's hippie city. surf city. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now it is def- or def- definitely then, too. And it's uh-huh. a lot of good reggae stuff going on down there, too. So. Yeah. Um, could I do a couple of questions about Frank? Uh, okay. I, yeah, I discovered Frank when he was still playing with the Greenbrier Boys, um, very late in their uh, in their time together. And I mean, I'm just he's just an amazing musician. He's an amazing human being. His, his sense of humor is absolutely one of a kind. And you know, uh, I think someplace that one of us within this podcast should be talking about the legend of the blessing of Frank's hands. Um, do you want to do that, or, or should I do that? Well, or? I, yeah, you can do that because you know I, I never quite got. I mean, David would always say, um, had his hands blessed, and and Frank would always correct him saying, "Prayed for," <laughs> had his hands <laughs> prayed for. That's what he. That's what he insisted on. You know, right. 
Okay. Um, so so I, I don't quite know exactly what that entailed, but uh, it obviously put some spiritual awareness into him that he became a, a killer mandolin player, that's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, o over the years he's done, he's composed a number of, of pieces uh, that are kind of classically tinged, classically tinged pieces right. by the man. Right. Right. Yeah. And each one of them is, is titled, Jesus Loves His Mandolin Player. And there, there'll be, you know, number one or number three or number five. And there's there's one on, on this live CD. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah. Well, the, the number of that one I don't know, but he had different mandolins tuned in different tunings mm -hmm. to do different pieces that number, you know, number whatever, number one or number two, whatever it was, you know. Oh. Uh, mm -hmm. so, sometimes he mentions which one he's doing, what number of one he's doing. I don't think he did on this one, but this one came. I, he did two. I had two takes of two different. I had take of two different mandolin pieces and I felt that this is the best one to put on the record so I picked this one. I don't know what number it is. Uh, it doesn't have a number here. Yeah, yeah one yeah, thing maybe we yeah. should point out here that actually this is a two CD set done over two nights in Santa Cruz in uh, 1975 and it's actually, let's see, 24 tracks from the two nights. So so yeah, I mean I guess you know it makes sense that there would be different songs on, on the two yeah. nights. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that's always amazed me about Frank is his, his sense of humor. It's really one of a kind. Um, you know, the last time I, I saw him, which was quite a long time ago, uh, he was into, a, I guess you would call, what he called backing talk words, which was real, yeah, rearranging syllables and, and the things he yeah. said. And, yeah, you know, I was wondering, exactly. was he doing just amazingly funny things on, on uh, in these concerts he did with the good old boys, too? Well, yeah, he would, he would, he would mess, he would, you know, tease people by saying, he called like David, David's band, the Easy Riders of the Purple Sage, you know. Uh, you know, <laughs> and people, some people think he was making a mistake, but no, he was kidding, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. And he, and he, he'd walk up, you know, he'd, uh, he, when he was speaking to the audience as a whole, he wouldn't do a lot of that uh, that type of humor, the backwards stuff, because he he had enough sense thinking that probably they wouldn't understand it, you know. So like you know, there's the if he got on stage and like when he answers the phone, he says uh, goodbye, that's me. You know, when he answers the phone, he wouldn't say something like that goodbye to the audience because they wouldn't understand what he's doing. So. But he was, he was usually really just, just talking on, on the CD when he's talking to the audience. And he blesses one guy out there because he's a bluegrass fan, Neil, I think the guy's name is. And he was very close to the audience that way, but he didn't really do the backwards stuff to the audience. But he certainly did it all the time when he was off stage. Mm -hmm. Or as, or, or as anyone would say, when, when back in talkwards, he would do it all, all the time when he was stage off. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And yeah, and, and he would always he liked to make up names for people too. Like he called Jerry, he called Jerry Big Gar. Big know. Gar. He called Taj Mahal Taja. You know. <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm going, oh Jesus Christ, oh man. You know, 
we went to see Olden in the Way at the at the boarding house that they were their their release party for their for their album. Mm-hmm. And we're standing there, and and Todd Todd comes over, and standing uh, Frank's in the um, Frank's between me and Todd, and he says, and he taps Todd, and he says, "Hey Todd, yeah, how you doing?" I'm just like really embarrassed going on. But he he's such a gentle man, you know. He's just like he got it, you know. He knew what's going on. He just um, you know, feel by the humor. Yeah. Well. One thing, one thing Frank does on, on the CD is, you know, it's the second of the two CDs ends with an extended over five minute version of Orange Blossom Special, which is kind of the classic song in, in so many bluegrass concerts back then. And of course, the old bluegrass format was to give each in- instrumentalist um, a solo break in the song. And so when Frank is doing his mandolin solo, on Orange Blossom Special, he drops in the melody to um, a dirty rhyme we used to sing as children. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. He does. He does do that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, he would do other stuff, though. He would do other stuff. He didn't do it on this performance, but he would do stuff like he would talk to his mandolin, and he would say, are you okay today? And he'd go, and he'd make it sound like, yes, you know, on, or, you know, the way he would play the notes. I mean, he would actually try to get, you know, make it talk. And he did this a number of times when we were, you know, he'd get right up to the mic and he'd get everybody quiet, you know, and the band quiet and the audience quiet. And he, then he'd, uh, uh, he says, I can't hear my mandolin. Now, somebody, my mandolin's talking and he'd get everybody quiet. Then he'd start having this conversation with his mandolin. It was, it was, it was uh, it was charming. It was really cute, really cute. <laughs> but he didn't do that on this one. But he'd go into all kinds of melody. Yeah. Well, it sounds like what he's doing with the mandolin was a form of ventriloquism. Exactly. Is exactly. It's exactly right. Yeah, ventriloquism. That's interesting. Mandotriloquism. There you go. There you go. Yeah. That's a new word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, somebody should tell Frank about this podcast. <laughs> you might enjoy hearing it. <laughs> um, well, you know, I haven't seen Frank since he was in his 70s, and he was going absolutely great guns on mandolin. His touch was still really good. And, and you know, he's 84 now. Now, curious, how is Frank doing these days? What's David Nelson up to? You know, I, I used to go see New Writers of the Purple Sage, but, you know, I, you know what are those, what's become of those guys? Well, they, David, um, they see who was it? It was Mar- oh, Paul, Michael Falderano and Buddy Cage revved up the new writers again. So they've been playing for a number of years now. A good, you know, at, at the new writers with, with Buddy and Nelson and other members. Uh, and but he had a uh, he came down with a case of he has uh, cancer and he's doing quite well. Uh, so he's not he's not touring as much as he did, but he's doing great. He, he plays uh, plays a number of gigs around here, and he plays with like uh, Pete Sears and all those guys in the David Nelson band. Mm-hmm. They do that, um, and he does some. He's been doing some acoustic stuff with uh, some of these some of his old bandmates that he uh, I can't. Or why I'm drawing a blank here. Thompson, Eric Thompson. Mm-hmm. Uh, from uh, who used to be in a band with Nelson and and uh, Jerry and Hunter 
they had a band together, Wildwood Boys or something like that. So he's doing he's doing gigs around. So he's still pretty active. I talked to him um, a couple days ago, as a matter of fact. He's mm-hmm. doing really good. Cool. And Frank, I called a couple of days ago. I haven't been able to raise him yet, but uh, he's back. He's living in Saratoga, New York. He claims he's still fast pitching softball, and and uh, and he does it. You know, he does. He can still he can still show up and play some music. So that's a good thing. In fact, we're thinking about going back and maybe doing a couple of shows with him. Wow. Uh, I, I mean, the rumor has, I mean, I've talked to Vince Herman a little bit from the, here it is, the Leftover Salmon, and Vince is a big Frank fan, so we're, him and I and uh, Jim Lewin were possibly thinking of maybe doing something. And Jim, Jim was a guitar player that was also in the Good Old Boys when Nelson wasn't. And he was, well, he wasn't in the Good Old Boys, he was in the Frank Wakefield band, excuse me, different, different thing. But, uh, so we're thinking about doing that, but they're doing good. Frank's doing good. Nelson's doing good. Uh, well, yeah. you've you've collaborated with a whole range of musicians, so I mean, my... I have, I have, yeah, I've been blessed on that. I thrilled moments in my life was playing with, with Big Joe Turner, playing upright bass for him yeah. for a couple of tours with Mike Bloomfield and Mark Napolin. That was yeah. that was really a highlight for me in my whole life, and. Uh, I've worked a lot with a lot of people. I mean, worked with Bernie Ledden in the studio, and different yeah. people. Okay, what was Big Joe Turner like? I mean, I, I I love Big Joe Turner's music. I've got about eight of his CDs. I was real nervous uh, about the gig because there's no rehearsals. You just show up and you do the gig. So I was real nervous, and uh, when Joe Joe came in and he couldn't stand, I had he had to sit down. He had a cane. And so before the show in the dressing room, I asked them, I said, uh, I said, Mr. Turner, I said, what songs do you, would you like? Yeah, I went over his repertoire and stuff. And I said, do you have anything in mind that you're going to be? And he said, he said, son, everything's in C. Act slow. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay. And I think we played one song in B flat. That was an instrumental before he, before he came on stage. <laughs> and uh, and that and he was just really nice. And then he, he 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 thanked me, and I thanked him, and he gave me his card that had his wife's name and his and his uh, dog Rhythm was on it. And then the next tour, he says, "Well, I got another dog now too, so I have Rhythm and Melody now." <laughs> And he was really good, man. He sang, he sang great. And there's a live record out. I don't, you guys, on live TV, actually, you, know, you probably can't find it, but it's called Shake, Rattle, and Blues. Hmm. And that's from the tour that we did. Could I ask one question? You ask all you want. All you want. Okay, I'm wondering, I've kind of, especially I got this impression from seeing the movie Grateful Dog that David Grisman's daughter put out, that playing with, um, Old and in the way, or good old boys, or just the informal sessions with David David Grisman, uh, was Jerry Garcia really needed it as a break from the huge undertaking that the dead became. And do you have any sense about that? That it, that it, that it enabled him to do things that that wouldn't have fit within the dead. Well, he uh, he definitely played bluegrass for the love of it. You know, I mean, he was really. I mean, that was his first thing. One of his first things. Uh, and and when he 
wasn't he would love to play music he loved to play so when the dead weren't working he would do these side projects you know and i'm and he never uh he never made it sound like uh he never had any kind of vibe saying feeling like oh man i'm glad i don't want to play with the dead or you know i'm tired you know i want to do this other music or anything he was just like an extension he always it was always an extension, you know, because because mm-hmm. uh, I would see him uh, also with the dead. I would go to the Winterland, many of the Winterland concerts and be backstage, you know. We'd be backstage talking or smoking or whatever, a joint or something. And, you know, if I was around him in both sides, you know, and, and the sound checks and everything, you know, uh, mm-hmm. so I could see both sides. And he never, he was the same with, you know, he treated everybody like that. He never mentioned that he was, tired of playing with the dead or anything, but needing a, a break or anything. He, he never, he, he knows that he probably did. In fact, that's probably what killed him to keep the machine going, you know, because, uh, because he felt that there were a lot of people depending on him. Mm. And I, I think that, that, uh, that did probably, that did probably come into his psyche, you know, yeah. that there was a lot of people depending on him. And uh, so he kept the machine going because the machine wouldn't go without him. And obviously, it hasn't, you know, really. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of uh, Jerry Oki out there right now that kind of, I don't know, some people like it, some people don't. It comes a matter yeah. of taste, I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the dead were great. I enjoy, I mean, I, I had so many great times at dead concerts and hanging, hanging with Jerry, playing bluegrass with him. I mean, I, I, I first played with him at this bluegrass uh, festival in Marin in 74. There was a workshop, and somebody said they needed a bass player back there. So I went back to stage for the workshop, and I saw Garcia, and I started hitting out the door, and he said, get in here, we need a bass. But he <laughs> got me in there, and I found myself on stage with him and McEwen from the Dirt Band, and Frank, and Grisman, and Rowan. Artie Spear, Richard Green, Basil Clemens, all these people at once. And then he, he wanted me to sub for Taj in the string band that night at the show because he thought Taj wasn't going to make it. I was honored, you know. So I got to backstage and he said, well, Taj is coming, but come back here. Let's play with these other folks. And he takes me into a trailer to play with Doc and Merle Watson. Oh. I mean, wow. I was like going, wow, man. I mean, and it was just like sitting around the living room playing. It was just really funny story you know and playing playing bluegrass it was great you know he was very he was like that and you know he was i know the i thought he had other things he did but uh he was always interested in playing music he loved playing music so but he did well he's definitely missed that's for sure um yeah yeah thanks pat for the time okay Okay. Uh, thank you And thank you, listeners. Go to goldminemag.com and check out original content. Find out how to save on a subscription. And also check out our giveaways. There are plenty of giveaways every month. Okay, we'll see you on the next podcast. Bye now.